Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Lerone Martin, author of the book, The Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover, How the FBI Aided and Abetted the Rise of White Christian Nationalism. Lerone, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, a blessing and a privilege to be with you. Well, it's our privilege to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Something about myself. Um, I am uh, a child of the church. Um, I was raised in church and really had a great deal of my early spiritual formation uh, formed by my parents and then through college, uh, mostly in um, majority white evangelical institutions. Um, and, that, and then I went off to um, divinity school there and was began to have spiritual formation that departed in many ways um, from the more conservative evangelical um, upbringing that I received. I was thinking that uh, that what you just described really does help to inform your book. I, I was really impressed by the uh, the nuance that you brought to your presentation to uh, evangelical uh, culture and, and and evangelical structures in, in, in mid-century America. What led you to write a book that focused on that connection between you know, evangelical religions, white, you know, Christian evangelical religions, and a, a figure that we don't necessarily associate at, at first blush with religion, which is uh, the head of the FBI. Yeah, you know, I, I have to tell you that it, it all started um, moving in a different direction. Um, I finished my first book, Preaching on Wax, which examined the beginnings, if you were, some of the roots of 20th century religious broadcasting by looking at the role of the phonograph industry and in recording and selling sermons. After I finished that book um, in 2014, my plan was to um, work on a book project looking at radio. I figured I'd just finished working on the phonograph and the next technology would have been radio. And then as I was working on this project, two really important things happened. Um, the first was that Michael Brown was killed in St. Louis, Missouri, specifically Ferguson. Um, and I recall having some conversation with ministers in the area. And as um, we went through the fall, waiting to hear what the grand jury decision would be in terms of Michael Brown's um, death, um, several ministers told me they had been contacted by the FBI um, uh, concerning the situation. And the question simply was, what are you ministers, what are you all going to do um, to make sure that this city doesn't explode? And so that got me thinking, how long and how often has the FBI been reaching out to churches asking for help? And then also during that time, I had coffee with a great colleague of mine, Bill Maxwell, um, former colleague at Washington University, where I was um, formerly on the tenured faculty. He had just finished a book about the FBI's surveillance of African-American writers. And we went out to coffee and he said to me, you know, as you're writing this book on, on radio preachers, 
you know, you might want to just check and see if any of them have FBI files because the FBI was concerned about black writers. They might be concerned about um, black preachers. So I began to make FBI uh, Freedom of Information Act requests about um, one particular minister. His name was Elder Lightfoot Solomon Mashal. And then Elder Mashal, um, he was a radio preacher, very famous, uh, beginning um, in the 1920s into the 30s. He was the first minister, black or white, to have his own TV show beginning in the 1947. So I made an FBI Freedom of Information Act request on him, and I found that the FBI was very friendly with him. And so that got me thinking about what other religious groups would the FBI be very friendly with and perhaps even seeking to partner with, and what ministers would respond in kind seeking to partner with the FBI. And that began a process of making Freedom of Information Act requests. And then eventually, um, as the project was going on, um, Billy Graham passed away um, in 2018. I made a Freedom of Information Act request um, for the FBI file of Billy Graham, and I got the runaround um, on that, and that led me to know that I was on to something. And so from there, I began to make a great deal of Freedom of Information Act request, and um, the story, you know, as they say, you know, uh, uh, ends from there, I guess. I won't say happily ever after, but I'll say that that, that, that it led from there, went from there. I was thinking that from the, what you described in the book, it sounded like researching it was was so much more of a struggle than writing it, which is so often the opposite of the experience that most uh, scholars have when they're doing this work. But as you described, it was really a, a fight to uh, unearth some of this material. And as you described, you know, a lot of it, you know, just remains a, just a little bit out of reach still. It does. I mean, I, I made my first request, I would say um, it would have been um, in early part of 2015. And that was for Elder Mashal. And then it went from there. And the process took so long because there were times where you're waiting on uh, FBI files to, to receive um, security clearance. And so sometimes that takes um, 18 months, sometimes 24 months. So you're talking about making a request and then waiting a year and a half or two to get the information. And you don't even know what's in the information. And so you're kind of stuck in a holding pattern while you're waiting for uh, some of these documents to come in. And so that's what took the project significantly longer than it would have otherwise had it just been a normal archive a place where I could have gone and to go look at historical documents, but that wasn't the case for a great deal of, of, of this project. And yet, as you uh, open with your book, it's about more than just the relationship between the FBI and the evangelical or, or really the, the broader Christian community. It's also it, it, in uh, element, there's elements within it of a spiritual biography of J. Edgar Hoover. And it's one that, again, I, I, I you know, when I, when I, uh, you know, started your book, I hadn't really thought of Hoover from that perspective. And yet, as you described, he has this very interesting spiritual background, one that really helps to put a lot of what he does as the director of FBI when it comes to uh, relations with uh, Christian churches in America into a particular perspective. I was wondering if you could start us off by talking a bit about that, uh, about that background of his and how that informs how that helps us to understand his perspective on religion and his views of it. 
Absolutely. That was the one part of the project that was readily available to me. The National Law Enforcement Museum um, has uh, Hoover's personal estate archive. And so there are a number of items in there that show a great deal about Hoover and his upbringing, you know, everything from family photos to even his teenage diary and adolescent diary. And what we find in that diary is someone who is heavily committed and concerned about Sunday school. Um, at, at a very young age, J. Edgar Hoover gets involved in teaching Sunday school, eventually rising to the top position that a teenager could have at the time at the, the Sunday school. He rose to the position of teacher and superintendent. And you see in this diary a young man who begins preparing his Sunday school lessons on Monday. Um, he's finished preparing them by Wednesday. He's reading other forms of literature that will help him get his point across in Sunday school. And then he's teaching Sunday school. And what his friends all said about him was that he would teach Sunday school and he would show up in his cadet uniform. So you have a young teenager who's so serious and regimented with his spirituality that he shows up to teach Sunday school class in a soldier's uniform on Sunday. And that really helps us to see the way Hoover understood the world, that it was ordered in a particular way. And that order begins with America as a Christian nation. And from there, all forms of authority and social structure flow. And for Hoover, that involved America not just being a Christian nation, but also America having a structure as relates to male authority, certain forms of sexuality, and a certain kind of racial hierarchy as well. And that shaped the way Hoover viewed the world from the time he was a little boy, um, beginning with his birth in 1895 until his death in 1972. And then he tried to preserve that world by shaping his FBI accordingly. The FBI overwhelmingly only hired until they were forced to change that. Um, the FBI hired special agents. There were white Protestants and white Catholics. There were a few um, Jewish male officers he hired, but very few. Um, it was mostly Protestants and Catholics, white Protestants and Catholics. And they became the special agents that he began to train and even put them through spiritual exercises and spiritual retreats to really form this idea that FBI agents were going to be both soldiers and ministers of America's God, America as a godly nation. So they mimicked the very um, um, adolescence of Hoover in that they were ministers like he was a Sunday school teacher. But they were also soldiers in the way that he had his cadet uniform. And he put them through a spiritual formations, practices of spiritual formation, to replicate that in his FBI. And from there is where the labor of the FBI flowed. One of the aspects of that that I thought was uh, especially interesting was your description of how these retreats and these exercises worked, that he did have a lot of agents, he had selected a lot of special agents who you know, reflected these values. But I also picked up, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that there was, a, a, to, a, to a considerable degree, there was an effort to 
make sure that the boss and then you did you use that I, I noticed how you used that title repeatedly throughout the book that the boss was happy that that there was a desire to uh, accommodate his desire so when he says that there's going to be a spiritual treat there's you know there's an implied advantage to going and being seen there and, and being known to be attended as a way of, of, of gaining favor with this incredibly powerful figure in the person who's incredibly influential in their careers that's exactly right. You know, the FBI is a paramilitary organization. And the way that I like to put it is in a paramilitary organization like the FBI, the best way to stand out is to fall in line. And so by that, I mean, is to fall in line, to follow orders expeditiously, to follow orders with excitement and to follow orders as if it's natural. And Hoover looked for individuals like that. So while the spiritual practices were not um, required in terms of FBI training, Hoover spoke of them and even had agents sign a law enforcement pledge that said in part that FBI agents would be ministers um, to the American public and soldiers to protect the American, American public. And so when signing that, when one becomes an FBI agent and then one is introduced to spiritual retreats and worship services specifically for FBI agents, one gets the idea that if you are believe in this organization, believe in all the organization stands for, and you want to get ahead and get promoted, it's best for you to fall in line. The Another aspect of it that I thought was especially interesting was the ecumenicalism. And, I, and for me, this stood out in your chapter on the Manresa retreat, because you have a chapter which is which talks about the very visible presence of of not just Catholics, but specifically Jesuits. And at a time when American, this was an age when Americans still struggled with the notion of electing a Catholic president. There was still this, this, this sense that Catholicism was not entirely trustworthy. And, you, you, and this is something you reflect in the chapter. And yet he is, it doesn't seem to be a problem for him to say that it's not just going to be a particular Presbyterian form of, of, of Christianity, or even a Protestant form of Christianity, but he's very open to basically any forms of Christianity that, that conform to this particular vision he has that, that you've already described. Right. And what you have here is two, two forces coming together. You have one in J. Edgar Hoover, who believes in a kind of Christian nationalism, that America is a Christian nation. We're not too concerned about theological particularities here, about how one understands salvation, how one understands atonement and these sorts of theological questions. For Hoover, what's most important is that America is a Christian nation and anyone who believes that and believes in the kind of American structure that flows from that, they're included in that story. Christian nationalists both then and today rarely care about theological particularities. One could be Catholic, one could be Protestant, one could be Jew. What matter, Jewish, what matters is that one, um, believes in America being a Christian nation. So you have that perspective. On the other side, you also have an America that is in the midst of, especially beginning after World War II, in the midst of the Cold War, where America is very much so engaged in a fight against communism that often takes the form of an existential or spiritual warfare perspective. And that is that America is a Christian nation and God is going to protect America over against the godless communist. 
And so in the midst of this moment, the Catholic Church is adamant about showing America that while the Pope is in Europe, where fascism and communism are, are on the rise, American Catholics are very adamant about displaying to America that their faith is commensurate or is able to be adapted to the American ideals of democracy and freedom. And so you have a Catholic church that's on the outside in many ways, trying to show and prove its American, its Americanness with an, with an FBI boss, J. Edgar Hoover, who's adamant that America is a Christian nation. And so together, Hoover and the Catholic Church come together um, um, to make a formidable um, um, team and partnership. And it's a partnership that begins in America at a time when many scholars have thought that American Protestants were mostly um, anti-Catholic. But we see in the FBI a place where this kind of partnership flows and comes together. And it's a partnership that will later dominate um, evangelical um, landscape in American politics. Well, I want to shift our focus a little bit now to uh, uh, another dimension of uh, that you address in your book, because in, in one sense, uh, while Hoover's you know vision of the FBI is one that that is is quite remarkable, it's also one that is. You know, we're seeing here what Hoover can do and his influence upon this organization that he is the director of for, for uh, effectively half a century. And yet you also then go on to describe how there is also this uh, – how, how white evangelicals who have you know, no position in government, uh, let alone within the FBI, are turning to Hoover for leadership. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain how Hoover came to assert that role, why white evangelicals turned to him, and then how he exercised that role. What what medium did he use, and and how did he use that medium to uh, to inform or or, or even shape uh, white evangelicalism in America? It's a great question. You know, the modern white evangelical uh, movement in this country. Um, beginning after World War II, um, as you said, is on the outside looking in. Um, the Protestant establishment, the kind of more um, groups that are affiliated with the National Council of Churches, more established groups like the Presbyterian Church, um, Lutherans, um, mainline denominations of this sort are chaplains within um, uh, the United States government. A number of folks are elected officials. And so the even modern evangelical movement, as they describe themselves, Billy Graham, Reverend Carl F.H. Henry and others see themselves on the outside looking in. And as they're building their movement, they decide that they need a magazine, Christianity Today. And in building that magazine, they decide that in order to get the attention that they need and to have the credibility that they need, they need men who are educated and men who are respectful. So they wanted to build a movement that had the respectability of more prominent mainline individuals, but yet had an orientation to the Bible that was more of a fundamentalist perspective. And they saw Hoover as filling that role. He believed in the Bible. Um, he often promoted the Bible. He received awards for his promotion of the Bible in American life and education. So they saw him as an opportunity to bring a kind of credibility to their movement. And Hoover happily accepted that invitation. 
in part because Hoover did not trust the Protestant mainline at the time. He saw them as increasingly liberal, siding with the civil rights movement, siding with progressive modernist ideas as it relates to society and technology and new forms of knowledge. And he didn't trust the far right, um, folks like Carl Mac and Reverend Carl McIntyre and others, because he felt that they didn't have respectability, they weren't educated, and he saw them in some ways as just as dangerous as those on the left. So he saw modern evangelicals as a third way, as a more moderate way to bring about a, um, a revival in America, to maintain America as a Christian nation. And they decided to come together, first and foremost, by having Hoover to be a part of Christianity Today and to be a contributor to the magazine. And from there, the relationship really took off and flourished. And it's one that it that Hoover uses as a as a tool not just for reaching out to white evangelicals and selling his vision, but he also then takes a lot of those materials and uses them in term to shape the FBI that he is you know seeking to uh, develop, even as the rest of the world changes around him. That's right. That's right. And then what you have is the FBI is writing. Ghostwriting, oftentimes, um, several men in the FBI were part of a, a unit called the Crime Records Unit that ghost wrote most of these articles. This is a, a, a unit um, that was very prominent in the FBI. So it allowed Hoover to have a significant reach in terms of his writings. And the, he ends up taking these writings. They're published in Christianity Today. And then he also distributes them from the Department of Justice. And so what it does is it has um, it brings about shows America that the FBI is dispensing spiritual guidance and guidelines to keep America safe. And that spiritual guideline is to make sure America stays a Christian nation. But also on these documents are stamped that it's from the Department of Justice in partnership with Christianity Today. So the American public not only gets spiritual advice from the FBI about how to keep America safe, but also this idea that Christianity today is in line with the Department of Justice and is the form of Christianity that will keep America safe, both from crime, subversion, and communism. And so there, the American public gets an opportunity to see perhaps this new group, this new emergent movement of the post-war era of modern evangelicalism is the authentic faith that will keep America safe. And underlying all of this is Hoover's sense assuredness that he gets Christianity. And, and you know, going back to the beginning of your book, you know, this is something that I, I you know, is, you know, he has that early uh, involvement with Christianity. He, he's a Sunday school teacher, and, and that carries through. And here I'm thinking in, in, about the uh, the anecdote that you open the third part of your book with, where he's having the meeting with Truman, and he's he's thinking he's sitting here telling Truman about the Bible and, and, and Judas's betrayal, and Truman corrects him. And and what I thought was, and I, ha I laughed out loud uh, as to how Hoover responds to this because. It, it, the, the, I, the sense that you that I got from reading that section was that how he's just so bothered that he's being, that he's being even if it's by the president of the United States that that he got some point of theology wrong that he sets 
that he sets agents to investigate this for him. And, he's, and they still come back to him. I get the impression with, with a certain amount of reluctance and say, yeah, you know, the president was right. And you're wrong about this. And, 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 and how that even then, though, that doesn't shake his sense that, that, that he knows the Bible and, and therefore is he has never any doubts or qualms about the guidance that he provides to it, even to uh, you know uh, ministers who with with degrees and 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 an audience that that you know that this you know familiar deal with the Bible. You know, you make a great point. I mean, that wonderful scene. He's in the office. You can just see it, where he's trying to comfort Truman, and you know he says, "Well, don't worry, President, Mr. President. You know that even Christ was betrayed once." And you know Truman corrects him and says, "No, Christ was betrayed three times." And from there, you know, Hoover actually does, as you say, he launches this investigation into Jesus Christ to try to figure out if he indeed was right. And I set the chapter up that way because it it shows how zealous he was about his knowledge of the Bible and how important he felt the Bible was in terms of the basis of his engagement with America. There's another part of the of the book where Hoover gives one of his earliest, if not the first, television sit-down interviews. And when he's questioned around the use of informants and spies and, and other forms of surveillance, he justifies it, not with the Constitution, but his first response is, there's even spies in the Bible. And so Hoover sees the Bible as a very important aspect of how he administers the FBI. And Americans come to agree with him, so much so that Americans, especially white evangelicals, begin writing to the director of the FBI for spiritual advice, questions they would normally reserve for their pastors and Sunday school teachers and deacons and chaplains and so forth. But they start writing the FBI saying the FBI is the only person who can be trusted and so it's American Christians begin writing the FBI asking, is it okay for me to listen to Billy Graham or should I listen to Oral Roberts instead? Or is it okay for me to read this version of the Bible as opposed to this version of the Bible? And I think we have a very difficult time imagining today that we would write the director of the FBI, Christopher Ray, write him today asking him, asking him for spiritual advice. But it just goes to show that the moment the country was in and that J. Edgar Hoover was able to maneuver himself and his FBI as being seen as the place, the one-shop stop to authenticate true faith and allegiance in this country. It's an understandable perception given the amount of honors that he received from uh, organized uh or various Christian organizations. There's an entire chapter basically devoted to the 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 you know, the, the, out, the honors they shower upon him. It, maybe this is perhaps a bit crude of a way to putting it, but the genuflection that they show to him. It, it, it's difficult not to. It's difficult to deny him that 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 public prominence, given the fact that you know it's it's Christian ministers, Catholic organizations that are putting him on that pedestal and 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 commending him for this Christian role that. That, uh, he's playing. You're exactly right. I mean, I think I was just blown away as well as I began to make requests and make those requests led to more requests. I was able to discover that everyone from the Catholic Church to the National Religious Broadcasters, which is the organization of Billy Graham and Charles Fuller and some of the most prominent and popular 
radio broadcasters and television broadcasters of the day, they all honored J. Edgar Hoover and all wanted him to come speak to them and advise them and guide them. And that relationship, again, shows, one, the, 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 the platform that Hoover had and the way that Christian groups in this country held him up as an adjudicator in many ways, an authenticator of true faith and religion, but also what it then does for these groups. These groups are able to say and authenticate themselves as being the true way for America to move forward and to be a safe and secure godly nation. And so Hoover collects as many awards um, in many ways, you know, probably only rivaled by um, Billy Graham in terms of the broad um, acceptance and the broad um, championing that he received from a, a, a broad constituency of Christians. And you thinking about this really helped me to gain a an amazing new perspective on his uh, relationship with Martin Luther King Jr. Because I never really thought about the the perspective that he brought to uh, you know confronting King as being one that is driven primarily by his religion. Because we, as you describe in the book, so much of of Hoover's presence in, uh, in in the evangelical uh, mind or in, in evangelical life is based upon this notion of anti-communism. And in that sense, I'm thinking it's an easy role for him to assert because he's dealing with a godless force. But with King, you have someone who is coming from the standpoint of Christianity, whose credentials as a, as a Christian spokesperson are, in, in one sense, better than, than Hoover's, and, and how that it, I got that impression from from that chapter that there's a certain frustration or aggravation that he has of dealing with someone who you know he who in effect is claiming a mantle that Hoover regards as being his own to to, to possess and and from which to uh, you know address problems that facing the country. You know, you're exactly right, and I think there's no better place to see this. Is, is in the letter that the FBI drafts um, and sends to him shortly after his, um, he's, he's being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And I think, you know, you see there, the letter is written as if it's from an African-American Christian who is doubting King's claims about being a minister and also of the civil rights movement being uh, a divine crusade. Um, and I think that, that's one insight that I tried to provide in the book is that this campaign against Martin Luther King Jr. is in many ways a religious crusade, at least from the FBI's perspective, that they are going after King and trying to point out that he's not preaching an authentic gospel, that he's actually a communist, or at best, he's being duped by communists and being used by communists. And they see him as a rival to a, offering up a different vision of a Christian America. For King, a Christian America is one that takes its, its faith community seriously and faith community seriously and promotes the idea of a more perfect union, that America has these ideas that are put forth in its founding documents but has fallen short, and America needs to progress towards fulfilling these ideals. Whereas Hoover sees these ideas as already fulfilled and people like Martin Luther King Jr. are actually trying to take America down the road to perdition. 
And so you see between the two, two different, very different visions of faith um, in America and the faith of America. And Hoover really does his best to try to discredit Martin Luther King Jr., even in the, as the letter indicates, um, trying to persuade King to consider committing suicide and to buy out of the civil rights um, crusade. And so seeing the two of these individuals, as I try to do in chapter eight of the book, and the final chapter, is a way to see these dueling faiths and different ideas about religion and politics that still exist in this country today. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate upon that last point, because uh, in in uh, the, the bulk of your book focuses upon the relationship between the FBI and white evangelicals in mid-century America. And yet it's one that helps us to understand better these groups and these relationships in America today. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon the legacy of this role that that Hoover had and this relationship with white evangelicalism and how it has helped to shape uh, for better and for worse, uh, you know, the, you know, that relationship as it exists with the country as a whole uh, to this day. Absolutely. I think, you know, there's a couple of ways we could go. I think number one, I mean, we'll start with the FBI. Um, I think J. Edgar Hoover's ghost is still very much so present, you know, and, and I use ghost purposely because, you know, a ghost is something that is nowhere, but yet everywhere at the same time. And Hoover's ghost is still very much present in the FBI. His name is still the the building that is the headquarters of the FBI. Um, the way that he structured the bureau is very much so still present. Um, it's overwhelmingly still um, um, comprised of white male special agents. Um, there have been a number of lawsuits um, about racial discrimination within the FBI. Um, and in both time, in all three cases in particular, judges have ruled that there was statistical evidence of discrimination within the FBI, but yet um, the numbers have not increased. In fact, they've declined. The last numbers that were available showed about 4% of special agents are African-American. The overwhelming majority are white and male. So we still have Hoover's ideas there being present in the FBI. His ideas around faith are still present in the Bureau. Um, the Bureau was still having worship services and religious retreats for agents. The only difference is by the, 80, by the time the 80s rolled around, the Department of Justice General Counsel advised the FBI that these were um, activities that could not be supported by federal appropriations and that they needed to take donations. And these would be more volunteer, um, uh, voluntary, excuse me, um, exercises. But faith is still very prominent within the FBI. So I think the last thing I'd say is that where we see Hoover's ghost is even the FBI's priorities. We saw that when it, we see that when it comes to communities of color, and faith communities of color in particular, the FBI tends to be hypervigilant as it relates to concerns of um, legal concerns or um, surveillance of these communities. But yet the Bureau still struggles with making white Christian nationalist violence a priority in the Bureau. One example is just simply in vocabulary. When we think about when there was um, a great deal of violence that we saw coming out of fringe groups of Islam, we saw the Bureau was very quick 
to come up with titles about radical Islam, radical Islamic terrorists or homegrown violent extremist um, labels that were very directly um, given to um, Muslim brothers and sisters. And even more recently, they came up with a term called black identity extremist, which was a term the FBI created, arguing that individuals inspired by black nationalistic faith were engaging in violence across the country, even though this was not really the case whatsoever. There was no evidence for it. But yet, when it comes to the violence we've seen in the last 10 years perpetrated by folks who are inspired by white Christian nationalism, the Bureau has come up with a term called racially motivated uh, violent extremism, as if to say that this is something that's happening at the same rate across the board for all groups. And we know this is not. We've seen it with various um, um, incidents of violence in faith communities across this country. And most recently, I would say, um, with what happened in January 6th, we saw the role that white Christian nationalism played with that. But somehow the Bureau it manages to seem to miss this or be a step behind when it comes to this prominent form of violence today. And then I'd say on the mm-hmm. other side, with evangelicals, I would say, one of the legacies we see here is that it, it, evangelicals begin to get a foothold in the foot, in, in the halls of power, um, even prior before the baptism and uh, election and inauguration of President Eisenhower. The FBI was um, uh, making um, overtures to evangelical groups and helping evangelicals to get jobs within the FBI. So I think we can see the legacy there. And of course, the most prominent legacy I think we can see within the evangelical community, evangelical politics, is white Christian nationalism. And that this is something that has grown within evangelical communities. It's tended to become more violent, I think, in the past 10 years. But it's still present, this idea that um, it's us against them when evangelical um, politics tends to be very ends justify the means so that even if individuals don't necessarily ascribe to the stated theological ideas that evangelical communities claim to profess, they're still willing to throw their support and weight behind particular political candidates and religious champions in order to achieve their ends. And I think that that's something we saw with J. Edgar Hoover. Evangelicals threw their weight behind him, even though he admittedly was not an evangelical. He said so himself. He did not believe in a born-again experience. But because of his belief in white Christian nationalism, evangelicals threw their weight behind him. And then I think I'd say, in addition to that, one other legacy we see is the role, uh, the connection between evangelicals and Catholics that Hoover and his FBI modeled this beginning in the 30s and 40s, but how white Protestants and white Catholics could come together and work together to bring America back to God. Now, this has become a partnership that's very vulnerable in our politics today. We really appreciate the time that you've taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, um, this book will be released in about um, a week and a half, and so I'm excited to, to get a chance to promote the book and talk about the book. And I'm also working on a project um, that shifts gears a little bit in my um, um, interest. I'm writing a book on um, the childhood of Martin Luther King Jr. You know, writing this book and thinking about all that the FBI did to him made me really think about um, what his childhood was like 
and how his childhood shaped him to be the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who we are, who we know of today and honor in this country in some ways. And it, it made me think about him and it made me think about what goes into making um, a Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So I'm going to be working on a book that's going to be focused on his childhood and his teenage years. It sounds like a fascinating study, and I hope that when it's complete, we can have you back on the show to discuss it. I would love to love to do that. Uh, Lerone Martin, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you.